Darwin's theory of evolution asserts two main propositions. First, it asserts that the history of life can be best depicted as a kind of great branching tree, where the forms of life that we see today represent the branches at the top of the tree, and the trunk of the tree is, represents the first one-celled organism from which everything else came. So it asserts that life has arisen as, a pro as the result of a, a, a slow, gradual, and continuous process of change from that very first simple ancestor to all the forms of life that have developed from it right up to the present. The second main proposition that Darwin's theory asserts has to do with the mechanism by which that continuous and gradual change occurred. That is Darwin's famous mechanism of natural selection acting on random variations, or now modern biologists would talk about a particular kind of variation known as mutations, which are uh, copying errors in the genetic material, in the sequence of, of digital characters in the, in the DNA. Um, and that second uh, proposition of, of uh, natural selection acting on random mutations is thought by both Darwinists and modern neo-Darwinists to be a completely unguided and undirected process. It's nature selecting the outcome, not an intelligent agent, okay? And so uh, in, in modern neo-Darwinism, natural selection and random mutation is thought to be a kind of designer substitute that can produce the appearance of design in living organisms without those organisms actually having been designed by any kind of guided or directed process uh, or, or mind. So the famous Darwinian biologist uh, Francisco Ayala has said that Darwinism uh, gives us design without a designer. Proponents of the modern version of Darwin's theory known as neo-Darwinism often claim that the fossil record provides either the best support for the, th the theory or that it provides unequivocal support for the modern form of Darwinian theory. But in fact, from Darwin's time right up to the present, the fossil record has posed a very considerable challenge to the Darwinian first picture of the tree-like picture of the history of life, but also to the idea of the creative power of the mutation and natural selection mechanism. Because what we see in the fossil record, in particular, when we're looking at major innovations in biological form and structure, is the abrupt appearance of such major innovations where in each case, those new biological forms are lacking any discernible connection to similar forms in the lower sedimentary strata. So you get an abrupt appearance of a new form of life, usually persisting through the fossil record with some slight variation, but the basic form remaining static over long periods of time, and then either the form going extinct or it persisting right up to the present. We don't see the gradual morphing of form from one major type of organism to another that is described by Darwin's Tree of Life and predicted on the basis of the action of his mechanism of natural selection and random variation slash mutation. There are many examples of the abrupt appearance of new forms of animal and plant life in the fossil record. I wrote a book about one of the greatest of those events called the Cambrian Explosion, which is an event about 520 to 530 million years ago where the first animal forms arose abruptly in the fossil record with no discernible connection 
to similar forms in the lower Precambrian strata. It's really dramatic. But the Cambrian explosion isn't the only such event in the history of life. There are many. Uh, a little bit later in the fossil record, there's an event called the Great Ordovician Biodiversity Event, or GOBI, where there's a whole slew of new forms of life that come into existence. And then as you go up the f and down the, the sedimentary column, you find that the first winged insects, the first, uh, the first dinosaurs, the first turtles, the first birds, the first uh, marine reptiles, the first flowering plants, uh, that the, the first flowering, flowering plants come into the fossil record, an event that's now known as the, 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 the big bloom, the biological big bloom. And then another striking event occurs in the Eocene period where you get the first mammals, where there are between 15 and 17 new orders of mammals that come suddenly into to the fossil record, again, with no discernible connection to similar creatures in the lower strata beneath the Eocene. And so this pattern is repeated over and over again with uh, paleontologist Gunter Beckley. I recently wrote a, an article, a scientific article, about 17 separate uh, fossil explosions in the history of life. And so sometimes people will say, well, the Cambrian explosion is an isolated anomaly. But after that, everything is very smooth and gradual and conforms nicely to the picture of the history of life that Darwin provided with his great tree of life picture. But that's actually completely false, that the overriding pattern, as, the, uh, uh, as Stephen Jay Gould and Niles Eldridge pointed out back in the 1970s and 80s, is one of abrupt appearance and stasis, where the basic forms of life, once they appear, remain, uh, remain static over long periods of time with slight variations on the basic theme. But we don't see the kind of morphing from one major morphological innovation into another that you would expect on the basis of Darwinian theory. Yeah, Darwin was well aware of the problem that the fossil record presented to his theory. In particular, he was acutely aware of the problem of, the, of what we now call the Cambrian explosion. And he, he acknowledged that the, this case must remain ex, as inexplicable at the time. Uh, but he thought that future fossil finds would resolve the, the mystery of the missing fossils, the missing ancestral forms. And so he thought that as, as, as paleontologists scoured the fossil record, they would find those missing pre, uh, ancestral intermediates or, uh, or, or precursor forms. Uh, and he used a charming illustration to get this across. He, he, he depicted the fossil record as something like a book that had a few of the pages still in it, but many of them had been torn out, maybe by erosion or something else. And this became known as the artifact hypothesis, the idea that the, the abrupt appearance of the fossil forms as depicted in our current fossil record is an artifact either of incomplete sampling, we haven't looked hard enough, or incomplete preservation. Now, in the 20th and 21st century, in our current uh, times, we now have good reasons to doubt the artifact hypothesis. First, we've had 160 years to look for the missing, for example, pre-Cambrian ancestors to the, 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 the Cambrian animal forms that first arose in the Cambrian period. And rather than find those missing ancestors, what the paleontologists have actually found is a whole new set, a whole new array of Cambrian animals that were unknown in Darwin's time, such that <clears throat> the abrupt appearance now is even more abrupt. There are more forms that, appear, that we now know appeared abruptly in the Cambrian, each of which is still lacking any discernible connection to ancestral forms in the, in the earlier strata. 
So the Cambrian explosion, from our point of view, has become more explosive. Well, the other part of the, the artifact hypothesis was the, the idea that perhaps the ancestral forms were simply not preserved because they were either too soft or too small, or the depositional environments weren't uh, adequate to preserve anything. And we've had a decisive test of that hypothesis in southern China. In a place called Ch near Chengjiang, in a formation called the Mao Shishan Formation, there's been a massive find of new Cambrian animal forms. Uh, documenting that the explosion was even more dramatic than, than Darwin was aware in the 1860s. But in addition to that, in a layer of shale beneath the shale that documents the, uh, <clears throat> the Cambrian explosion, a, a layer called the Dushantu shale, paleontologists have discovered late pre-Cambrian embryo fossils. Now the embryos are of course extremely small and they're being embryos extremely soft. So here we have an example of soft-bodied forms, soft-bodied microscopic forms that are being perfectly preserved, but in that same layer, there is no evidence of the ancestors to the Cambrian animals that come immediately after in the fossil record. And that raises a question, if you can preserve soft embryos, why aren't you preserving the hard parts of the ancestral precursors to say trilobites or the primitive fishes or the other forms of life that first arose in the Cambrian. And the Chinese paleontologists by and large have concluded that the reason that there's no preservation of those alleged pre-Cambrian ancestors is that those ancestors weren't there. They simply weren't there. So the artifact hypothesis, the claim that the ancestral forms were not preserved because they were too soft and too small, have been, has been directly refuted by finds like that at the Dushantu Shale, which show that soft-bodied forms can be preserved. Even microscopic soft-bodied forms can be preserved, but in the same layers, you find no evidence of the, the ancestors of the animals that come later. Darwin's theory predicts that for every form of life, there must be an ancestor and there must be transitional forms connecting the ancestor to the, the present form. There are a few examples of transitionals within fairly, fairly narrow taxonomic groups. So we do know that there's variability within the basic body plan of, of certain kinds of animals. But the overwhelming pattern in the fossil record is one of discontinuity especially as it pertains to the major morphological uh, innovations in the history of life and the separate body plans that they exhibit. So the, 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 missing, the, the problem of transitional intermediates is actually quite uh, significant. And though there are a few, a, a few examples of, of, of transitions within, within the framework of a, of a given body plan. The horse transition, for example, is, is, is reasonable, but, but the major transitions exhibit discontinuity. Well, population genetics is, in a sense, the mathematical expression of the neo-Darwinian theory, or what's known as the neo-Darwinian synthesis. And population genetics allows um, evolutionary biologist to calculate how much change would be expected in a given amount of time if they know certain factors like the mutation rate, 
the generation time from, uh, from adult to offspring, the, um, and, the, and the size of populations. That's the name population genetics. Uh, it also allows, conversely, the um, calculation of how long it would take for any given change to occur on average, if you know those same factors. What's called the waiting times problem is derivative of the population genetics. Population genetics is the mathematical expression of Darwinian theory, and it allows uh, evolutionary biologists to calculate how long on average they ought to wait for a given amount of evolutionary change to occur if they know something about the mutation rate, the generation time, the time between adults and offspring in a given species, and the size of populations. And the waiting times problem has emerged as, as evolutionary biologists have realized that certain biological traits or anatomical features would require coordinated mutations. And whereas a single mutation might not take that long to occur, we might not have to wait very long on average for a single mutation to occur. With each additional mutation, the waiting times, the expected waiting times for such an event to occur, rises exponentially. And so if you have complex adaptations or anatomical structures that would require multiple coordinated mutations, you're going to, by the math of population genetics, the mathematical expression of neo-Darwinian theory, you're going to have to wait an enormously long time on average for such mutations to occur, such coordinated mutations to occur. And so once you get beyond about three coordinated mutations, the waiting times rise dramatically, exponentially, into the hundreds of millions or billions of years, far more time than is allowed for the appearance of given anatomical traits as we find them arising in the fossil record. If the Darwinian mechanism lacks the creative power to generate the, the large-scale, what are called morphological innovations, the big changes in form that arise in the fossil record, that raises the question, well, what, what could produce those new forms of life? And what we know from biology is that whenever you see new forms of life arising, you also have to have new information. It's very much like in our computer world. If you want to give your computer a new function, you have to provide code. You have to provide information in the form of software. And something very similar is true in life. If you want to build a new form of animal life, you have to have new organs and tissues. But new organs and tissues require new dedicated proteins to service those organs and tissues. For example, many of the animals that came into the uh, fossil record in the Cambrian period had, 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 had a gut. But guts require digestive enzymes, and digestive enzymes are proteins, and proteins are built in accord with the instructions stored on the DNA molecule. So as you see these explosions of form in the Cambrian period or other periods in the history of life, what you're also seeing, therefore, is explosions of biological information. Biological form requires biological information, genetic information, and other forms of information. And that raises the question, where did that information come from? Now, what we know from our uniform and repeated experience, which is the basis of all scientific reasoning about the past, is that information, especially in a digital form, always comes from an intelligent source, whether we're talking about a paragraph in a book, or a section of software, or a hieroglyphic inscription, or even information embedded in a radio signal. Whenever we see information and we trace it back to its ultimate source, 
we inevitably find a mind, not a material process. Well, if the mutation selection mechanism is not capable of generating the amount of information necessary to build new forms of life, then a better explanation is actually intelligent design. It's that a mind played a role in the origin of those new forms of life. And that's consistent with everything we know about the cause and effect structure of the world. Mutations degrade information, but minds generate information, and therefore, mind provides a better explanation for the origin of information than the Darwinian mechanism. By the 1920s, 1930s, uh, you had a number of very fine paleontologists, many of them European, who actually who looked at things such as uh, uh, fossil corals or stratigraphy or fossil mollusks and uh, um, invertebrates in general, but also vertebrates. I'm, I'm speaking of uh, men such as Otto Schindewolf. And what they found is that the fossil record, uh, you have periods of uh, explosive diversification, followed by maybe minor diversification with what they called stasis, and then you had extinction, and then you'd have another period of this. So they came to the, the conclusion that the fossil record is, um, um, as Stephen Jay Gould and Niles Eldridge would later say, highly punctuated in terms of, of these, these events. The interesting thing is that by the 1940s, 1950s, uh, particularly in the Anglo-Saxon world, uh, the idea came to the fore that there really is no, uh, there really is uh, no, uh, how would you say, uh, evidence to the contrary that Darwin had it had it right. Uh, and you had, for example, Marjorie Green. She wrote a famous essay. I think it's famous, called Two Evolutionary Theories." where she compared the empirical evidence presented by, say, Otto Schindewolf, who believed that evolution was highly punctuated. <clears throat> and, and she compared it with that of G. Gaylord Simpson, who is one of the most famous uh, American paleontologists and, of course, uh, a prominent uh, uh, follower of the modern, a pro proponent of the modern synthesis. And what she concluded was that Schindewolf was being quite true to the evidence and, and that Simpson, on the other hand, uh, was uh, casting the fossil record through the lens of the modern synthesis. Those things that did not fit, he would give terms like quantum evolution to, which was just a, another fancy way of saying it's punctuated, or it's, uh, there are d these discontinuities, so to speak. Um, <clears throat> and... Um, she writes in that essay that uh, she that there is this ruling passion in the modern synthesis, which is to defer uh, to to move from the empirical evidence, that is the study of fossils, the study of morphology, the study of genetics, and then to move into the more abstract realm of population genetics, where then one can be playing with uh, big A's and small A's and big B's and small B's and applying uh, various uh, statistical finesses to get things uh, to work. So I, I would say that um, uh, the common textbook story of the kind that you would read, say, in National Geographic, is that uh, you look at the fossil record, you look at the geological evidence, and uh, uh, everything comports fully with the Darwinian theory of evolution. 
that yes, there may be some quote-unquote missing links, but these are few and far between and soon to be filled in, if not currently being filled in. However, it's long been noted uh, that there are, in the fossil record itself, uh, that there are periods of explosive diversification. I mean, where um, whole new, we would say, body plans appear within a period of just a few million years, uh, followed by a stabilization of that body plan, and then long periods of stasis, possibly extinction after that. Uh, you see this, for example, with uh, angus flowering plants. Uh, you see this with uh, bony fishes. Uh, you see this uh, notably with whales, where you have more or less, uh, quote-unquote, walking whales, and then in a period of a few million, few million years, uh, you have fully aquatic uh, cetaceans and a radical reorganization of the body plan. Um, uh, you, you see this also in, in, in the invertebrates, uh, where you have just this, um, you have some groups, for example, like the uh, edible shrimp you might find in the, in the, in the grocery store uh, that's, uh, that's farmed, uh, you have that they appeared in the uh, Permo-Triassic or the uh, uh, Jurassic, and their body plan has remained essentially the same ever since. They have a, a lot of genetic diversity, but yet in terms of their morphological features, they appear in the fossil record, and they've been with us for um, um, uh, well over 100 million years. Well, if you look at the one diagram Darwin provided in his 1859 book, uh, or at least in later, later editions of The Origin, um, <clears throat> where he doesn't have a, a single uh, root, uh, but he does have, uh, he shows a diagram where you have types branching off and gradually you have the appearance of genera and then families and then orders and uh, on and on to what we would call phyla. The interesting thing about the fossil record is it's actually uh, the, uh, the reverse. You have your phyla appear first, where you have the major body plans uh, the so during the so-called Cambrian explosion, maybe a few of those body plans earlier. So we're speaking about a um, half a billion years ago or so. And then you have uh, the appearance of um, classes and orders and then families and subfamilies and so on and, and so forth. Yeah, well, I would say the, uh, the greatest uh, great leap forward um, would be the multicellularity where you have the, uh, assuming you had a few billion years of just unicellular life, maybe microbial algal mats, if you want to consider that multicellular or not. But I mean the appearance of metazoans, where you have organisms that um, they're not only in a multicellular association, but uh, they, uh, they have distinct body plans. Uh, so for example, uh, when I mean explosion, I mean you have the appearance of mollusks, you have the appearance of the arthropods, you have the appearance of um, echinoderms, you have the appearance of um, uh, corals, sponges, so all, all the even, even um, uh, chordates. Um, so that would be an example. So you have that leap from uh, unicellular life 
think of a bacterium uh, or think of a protozoan or think of, a, of an uh, algae. And then you have the um, transition to multicellular life that would form a body plan that when you, you would see it, you would, you would recognize it because those body plans, not all of them, but many of them are with us uh, today, including ourselves. All right. um, <clears throat> another example of a great leap forward would be the transition from, uh, in, in the chordates, the transition to uh, uh, having a true backbone, having a uh, cranium, um, what we would essentially identify with the origin of the groups that gave rise to uh, cartilaginous and bony fishes and, and uh, allied groups. That's another thing that um, um, uh, taking, for example, the vertebrate tree as is, uh, we are part of that. It, it explains uh, our body plan. It was, it was formed with that great leap forward. Population genetics is the study of uh, genetic variation in space and time uh, in, in one or more lineages. It is a product of, uh, it, it arose, I would say, be beginning in the early 20th century. Um, it was the idea that one could, uh, that the focus should not be on development, that is how, you know, embryogenesis, the focus should be on um, what is called the germline. So it's a study of essentially germ cells, their uh, genetic constitution, and how that would change over time. Uh, and there are various mathematical tools that uh, um, um, make that uh, rather straightforward. Now the question as to whether population genetics poses a challenge or not to Dar uh, uh, Darwinism uh, I am of two minds. On the one hand, population genetics is a product of uh, the modern synthesis. And so it is, it provides an axiomatic foundation, to use, uh, you know, a $20 term, that is uh, essentially to, to support the modern synthesis. So uh, <clears throat> it, it was a result of weeding a number of contending hypotheses out. So in that sense, I would like to say it's a rigged game. Uh, it, it's going to favor the modern synthesis. The problem is that uh, it, it, it's, uh, the, it, its scope, its purview, is to handle small incremental changes over time. And the under, one of the underlying assumptions that was there from the very start is that there's enough ver genetic variation in a population that selection can come in and essentially um, um, what would be uh, craft craft the population or move the population in a certain direction in combination with uh, genetic drift. Uh, the problem is uh, two things. Uh, number one, it, the question of the origin of the fittest, the arrival of the fittest as opposed to the survival of the fittest. Uh, has long been relegated to the side, is kind of put to the margins of uh, population genetics. Uh, the other thing that's been put to the margins has been very rapid transitions. Uh, how, do, how does one account for, say, a dramatic leap forward in a lineage 
uh, that is a change in body plan that's dramatic uh, when you're dealing with long-lived organisms that have small population sizes uh, and where those changes required, um, at least on the surface, a number of genetic changes. That's when the model, uh, again, uh, it, it falls out of the purview of, the, uh, of population genetics. Uh, well evolution was deemed in 2001 uh, the poster child of macroevolution. Uh, that is because uh, the uh, beginning around that time, a number of, of more or less complete uh, fossil whales had been discovered, allowing for their to, to in other words, uh, for the discovery of so-called missing links, going from a full four-legged walking um, hippopotamus or, or uh, um, uh, some other ancestor to a fully aquatic, what we would regard as more or less a looking like a modern, modern whale to appear. And so uh, given the, uh, given the, uh, the anatomical, given the paleontological evidence, by 2001 it was considered the best case uh, scenario for Darwin. So all modern whales, porpoises, dolphins, and their their ancestors um, are thought to stem from a, a creature that was four-legged, superficially looked like a greyhound or, or a wolf. Um, uh, it, it may have been uh, amphibious, but uh, it certainly had uh, all the features of a terrestrial mammal. A cartoon version of whale evolution would be you start from a four-legged ancestor that's fully terrestrial, um, has offspring that adopt, uh, begin, say, hunting along uh, um, margins of a seashore. Uh, it's, their offspring become more uh, amphibious. You have loss of the hind limbs. You have the transformation of the forelimbs into flippers. You have the emergence of a, uh, a tail fluke. You have, uh, over, and their offspring in turn, as, it's, as this is taking place, are becoming ever more torpedo-shaped until finally you have a, a, a more or less modern uh, whale that's completing its life cycle in a uh, fully marine environment. Well, if you start from a creature like I just mentioned, uh, uh, superficially looks like, in my opinion, a, a greyhound or, or, or a wolf, um, and to, a, to the first fully aquatic whale, uh, 9 to 11 million years. The interesting thing is that for most of that period, uh, filling in the gaps between a four-legged, uh, superficially, you know, wolf-like ancestor <clears throat> to the, on the other uh, side, a fully aquatic whale, you had a number of so-called walking whales or proto-whales. Uh, we, we have a number of more or less fully intact uh, skeletons of those, or their, their fossilized remains, I should say. And it's clear that the attributes that, that 
separate the fully aquatic cetaceans from their walking whale ancestors uh, appeared very abruptly in the fossil record. Um, my estimate is within a, a few, few million years because you go from a type, I'll give you one, a name, Georgiacetus, which uh, shows reduction of the hind limbs, but no tail flukes. Uh, it has some aspects of, of the uh, uh, fully aquatic um, um, fossil whales, but not all of them. And then you, you come to a period of a creature like Dordon or, or Basilosaurus, which was originally thought to be a sea serpent, by the way, uh, where you have, it's, it's, it is distinct from modern whales, but it was fully aquatic and it had tail flukes. It had reduced hind limbs, but at the same time, it had many of the features that would uh, um, uh, characterize um, uh, modern whales too. First of all, that is an open question. Uh, it's an open question because uh, there have been no uh, empirical studies, there have been no mathematical studies to actually grapple with the number of changes that have been, uh, um, that took place. Um, <clears throat> so that's one thing. Second is that uh, you have to narrow that down because, again, we're talking about something that's akin to punctuated equilibrium. You, you have a period where you have a number of these so-called walking whales, but they lack uh, many, if not most, of the attributes that would separate the, the, the earliest fossil fully seagoing or seafaring uh, uh, whales and modern whales from the rest. And that appears very abruptly in the fossil record. Uh, so the question is, is there enough time? It depends on you have to take into account a number of factors. One is that we're talking about organisms that have long generation times. On average, we'll say five years. Um, <clears throat> so they're not like bacteria, viruses, or fruit flies, or anything like that. Uh, second is that mammals, in general, do not have large reproductive population sizes. Uh, so we're not talking about millions of, of individuals. We're talking about some. Uh, uh, populations that may have numbered in the thousands or ten thousands or perhaps more. So those put a number of constraints on um, the number of genetic changes that could have accrued over time. Uh, the, third, the third issue is that when you look at the characters that had to be transformed uh, in, in a window of say five million years or, or, or less, and you begin doing calculations, just working within the parameters of population genetics. And this is something that I've been doing with some colleagues. What one finds is that uh, once you get beyond, say, five or six or seven um, uh, changes that had to occur more or less, not necessarily simultaneously, but changes that had to build to an adaptation, it becomes prohibitive. There simply was not enough time for that to occur. Well, I guess the best analogy would be, imagine if you're, you were going to take your Volkswagen and, and decide you were going to visit the Marianas Trench in it. Um, or let's say you're going to dive, have, have a, a submersible that could go down a few thousand feet. 
well, how many engineering changes would you have to make to your vehicle to accomplish that? Well, it's similar going from a four-legged fully terrestrial mammal to an organism that can complete its life cycle uh, in, in, out at sea, uh, give birth there, suckle the young, uh, dive down a thousand feet or so, hunt fishes, etc., requires a number of extensive changes. Changes to uh, the eye, eyes, changes to hearing, uh, changes to uh, the reproductive system, uh, modification of the body so that uh, instead of walking on four limbs, what the body adopts a, a, a torpedo shape more or less that uh, has high, you know, hydrodynamic properties. It can, it can move very swiftly to hunt prey under the water. Uh, so you're talking about changes to the musculature. You're talking about changes to the, to the uh, vertebral column, uh, the uh, origin of a tail fluke and all of the musculature and, and, and also neurological systems for coordinating that. Changes of breathing, uh, which is very important. You, you, you have to be able to <clears throat> control breathing in such a way that when, when uh, uh, diving, there's the, the blowhole or, or the, the, the nostrils remain closed. And then there can be the exchange of, of the exhalation and inhalation once the surface. Then there's the question of sleep. Uh, you've got to be able to sleep at sea. Mammals sleep. And you've got to do that while underwater. Uh, so, uh, or at least for most of the body being underwater. Uh, so when one looks at the changes, when one looks at the, uh, and many of these changes occur very early in the embryology of uh, dolphins and whales. So all these things have to be rooted back to uh, uh, development. And what you can see is that uh, the characteristics of the, the features that enable one to say, yes, that's a dolphin, that's a whale, no, that's, or no, that's a four-legged uh, terrestrial mammal, occur early. And so these are changes that would have to be incorporated into the body plan um, very early on. Years ago, David Berlinski came up with a back-of-the-envelope calculation on the number of, of characters that would have had to have been transformed going from a walking whale to a, to a fully aquatic whale. And his ballpark estimate was 50,000 characters that had to change. Uh, I was motivated to look into it. And depending on how detailed one wants to be, I think David Berlinski is far more right than he is wrong. I think the number of changes, the, the morphological details that separates a walking whale from a fully aquatic whale, particularly our modern whale in, in, in certainty, is anywhere from uh, 5,000 to 10,000, if not more. I would err on the side of David Berlinski's estimate as opposed to those who think, well, all you'd have to do is shave a cow, cut off its legs, throw it in the water, and it would be able to uh, you know, uh, perform the task of a whale. Uh, that is, only a few changes would have been required. In 2006, um, Hans uh, uh, Tewissen and, and some other group uh, looked at hind limb reduction in, in the so-called walking whales 
because one signature of the fully aquatic whales is that they have uh, extremely reduced hind limbs. The hind limbs are present, but they're within the, the body. So you, you, there, there were external remnants of them, but nevertheless, they, they would not have been able to, uh, uh, to move around on land successfully. And, but so, we, uh, so what was proposed was a microevolutionary model of hind limb reduction. And that's one where you have a number of genetic changes, nothing dramatic, but creating in this walking whale population or proto-whale population, and then you end up with the, um, uh, the fully aquatic version of that. Now, what I have looked at is the number of genetic networks that would have had to have transformed. How many would have been involved in the, with the hind limb? How many would have been involved with the reproductive system? Because uh, you have to recall that with the reduction of hind limbs that you see in cetacean, you also have dramatic changes to the pelvic region. You have the loss of that. It's detachment from the vertebral column. And this affects reproduction because the reproductive organs have to be attached uh, to the pelvic region, et cetera, in, in terrestrial mammals by and large, in order for things such as copulation. So when you're talking about whales, you're talking about a, a completely different uh, picture for how that can occur. So things like the reproductive uh, genetic network had to change, the musculature network had to change, the hind limb, musculature, uh, uh, hind limb bone development muscular uh, system had to change, um, the neurological system had to change. So the number of genetic transitions that had to occur, depending on how micro you want micro to be, uh, is anywhere from the, I would say, uh, many tens to, to hundreds. Now, that is of genetic changes that would have had to have, had to have accreted in the population over time. When you construct a realistic model, taking into account on average, five years generation time, on average, say, uh, a breeding population size of 10,000 to 100,000 individuals, which is, I think, a reasonable estimate for a proto-whale population, you find that anywhere between five to 10 genetic changes uh, is pushing the limits of the time available. When you start talking about 20 genetic changes, and I'm, I don't mean just average genetic changes, I mean those that make it, would have made a difference uh, in that transition, say in the reduction of the hind limbs or in the repositioning of the, um, uh, of the reproductive organs. Um, if you go beyond 10, 15 genetic changes uh, as being a requisite for that, then there was no time available. Well, it depends upon the estimates that you use, but if, for example, you, you want to think of one morphological innovation, let's say the origin of tail fluke, which involves, it's just more, more than having an extension of the tail, uh, it involves a modification, uh, it involves the origin of a unique um, uh, part of the backbone called the ball vertebra, which enables uh, the tail to move up and down. It involves a modification of the um, musculature. It involves a modification of the um, uh, neurological control of that musculature. 
And so we're talking about a number of changes, but if, so if you imagine, say, that two genes are involved, according to some estimates, uh, that, that's, and these are not my own estimates, but uh, these follow from a, a paper published uh, a few, about a decade or so back, uh, that would take about 43 million years for those two changes, I mean, two genes to come together in such a way that would enable, say, a tail fluke to, to have emerged. Well, there, there just was not enough time. It's, it's a numbers problem. Uh, the analogy I like to use is imagine someone goes from, say, poverty to being a billionaire overnight. Well, that raises the question, how did that happen? Uh, were they pinching pennies? Uh, were they a wise investor? Uh, did someone, some wealthy uh, uh, relative, uh, 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 pass on their estate? What exactly happened? Uh, so when you look at whale evolution from the, from the same perspective, and you start saying, well, uh, let's assume that we're talking about hundreds of morphological changes here. Um, and let's assume, simplistically, mind you, that, you know, it's just one or two genes underpinning each morphological change, maybe even more, depending on how micro you want those transitions to be. It becomes very quickly on uh, prohibitive. There just was not enough time. So... Um, Taking other estimates, and um, this I've done in collaboration with others, if you required, say, five genes to change, or, or more, say up to ten genes to change, to have the emergence of a tail fluke, or to have the emergence of, say, um, uh, or not emergence, but say, a, a fully reduced hind limbs, like you would see in the uh, um, uh, modern whales, then the three, four million years, uh, even nine to 11 million years, um, given population size estimates, given generation time estimates, there was not enough time to accomplish that. So that means that we have to look at other models for how that transition occurred. Models that have largely been ignored um, by advocates of the modern synthesis. Uh, one favored hypothesis that has come to the fore um, not by myself and by others, uh, um, others that would be, say, in the intelligent design community, but those that work with fossil cetaceans, is that uh, essentially is that of the hopeful monster, that maybe there were one or two genetic changes that radically transformed a number of organ, organ systems all at once. The problem with that is when you look at the genes that are involved in, say, the hind limb development that we know um, uh, play a critical role in dolphin embryogenesis, those genes have multiple effects on, on, on for example, they have effects on heart development, they have effects on brain development, so they just don't affect one, you know, just the hind limbs, the femur, and, and, and things like that, the, the, the pelvis. So when you have a mutation, and we know this from studies in, say, mice, when you have a mutation, uh, yes, indeed, you may get the, a reduction of hind limbs, but you also may have a number of significant birth defects that effectively make the, that, that mutation null and void in terms of its, um, its reproductive advantage. Yeah, so it's an arrival of the fittest problem as opposed to a survival of the fittest problem.
So it's a question of if a particular trait needs two or more mutations, not to appear simultaneously, so we're not talking about what's the probability of that, but just for two changes to coalesce, come together in an individual such that an adaptive trait appears, uh, how much time would that take? Well, you have to, again, factor in you know, how long the generations are, uh, what is the average population size that's breeding, contributing to the next generation uh, on average, and, and then look at, well, what percentage of the mutations would not necessarily be neutral, but would actually uh, be advantageous. And what one finds is that that's, that's a, a problem that has been largely ignored until Michael Behe put it front and center uh, in uh, the mid-2000s. And then it began to be, it had been investigated. I mean, people had looked into it um, uh, before, sure. But uh, you started having uh, advances on the mathematical front uh, by investigators such as Durrett and Schmidt, who started looking at things like uh, human evolution. How many, for example, uh, how long would be the waiting time for two mutations to come together, two novel changes that would give an adaptive trait? And they found that in the case of, say, hominids, that would include myself and would include also uh, our, our ancestors, uh, that would have been 216 million years. That's the waiting times that it would have taken for those two changes to have come together in such a way that you would get some, some novel trait to appear. And remember, uh, estimates of, say, human-chimpanzee divergence is anywhere from 5.5 million to 6 million years. So 216 million, if you have to wait that long and you look at the fossil record, there's a, there's a problem there. That is the waiting times problem. And you can apply it also to the well evolution problem. Um, what is the waiting time, say, for those 20 genetic changes to have occurred that contributed to hind limb reduction or the emergence of a tail fluke? Uh, how many million years are we talking about here? So you have to think of it uh, in terms of, it's again, a numbers game. You have to think of it in terms of the resources available, changes that would have occurred, and what are the time constraints on those changes. So why is generation time a problem for whale evolution? Well, unlike viruses that can, um, uh, not only are there large numbers of them, but uh, they, they, can, they can mutate rapidly. And so the turnover is, is as, as we know, uh, very rapid. In the case of uh, bacteria, for example, under ideal conditions, uh, their, their generation time can be, you know, half an hour. Uh, for fruit flies, it can be eight days. So what does this mean? It means that genetic changes can occur very rapidly because the turnover of the populations are taking place very rapidly. So you can see things like uh, insecticide resistance appear very quickly and spread to a population very rapidly. That's not a problem. When you come to something like uh, mammals, when you come to, to whales, uh, you're talking about generation times of say five years. So suddenly the turnover, that is where you have a, you know individuals reproducing, um, 
the young growing to maturity in turn reproducing, suddenly the, the, the turnover, the genetic turnover time becomes much, much, much longer. And so the textbook uh, models that one would say one would take from viruses or bacteria or fruit flies and extrapolate over to wells no longer. I mean, it, it applies, but it becomes orders of magnitude uh, longer. Uh, so that's one of the aspects of the waiting time problem. The breeding population size is a problem for well evolution for uh, actually two reasons. Uh, one is that mammals in general have breeding population sizes that are on the order of, take the Norwegian rat, say around 10 to the 6th or, you know, 10 to the 5th even. Um, and so they're really not that large. There are a lot of Norwegian rats living in a lot of cities, but in terms of the actual breeding population size, on average at any given time, it falls far less than, than 10 to the ninth individuals. Now, why, why is that a big deal? Well, it has been, uh, when you look at the equations of population genetics, natural selection really doesn't have traction on populations that fall below that 10 to the ninth number, breeding population size on average. And so mammals, mammals, birds, some flowering plants, they fall down into a range at which uh, to invoke natural selection to explain changes occurring over time, the equations really don't have, uh, selection really doesn't have traction there. Now, that's one aspect of it. So if you want to invoke selection and you say, but the population sizes we're talking about are on the average of 10,000, 100,000 individuals, the selection option no longer applies, which brings the second problem. What that then begins to apply is what is called a drift model, which means that under a genetic drift model, a trait, be it a good trait or be it a bad trait, uh, has a 50-50 chance of getting fixed in a population over time. So, uh, and according to some estimates, in uh, mammalian populations, including our own, the evolution that has occurred has largely been due to uh, genetic drift. It's not been due to um, selection, if you will, forcing the population down a certain trajectory. Uh, this is uh, the, the technical term for it is a near neutral model which means the population can go in a number of directions um, willy-nilly. So that is the, that's the uh, breeding population size aspect of the waiting time problem. The problem is that what we see in whale evolution uh, is we see directionality. We see a number of coordinative changes that occurred very rapidly. And so um, to, to explain that on the basis of just genetic drift, that uh, random changes just happened to come together and appear to be directed, um, that does not seem to, to comport at all with what we see, uh, which is why natural selection was invoked for, for 
1859 to account for such directionality. When you say, well, natural selection no longer really applies, things just happen, and then you see the directionality of going from a walking whale to a fully aquatic whale, the two don't add up. It does not seem to comport. I know of no neutral model that can explain uh, the kind of directionality you see in whale evolution. When you look at these uh, punctuated events in the fossil record, where all of a sudden you have the appearance of, say, the metazoan body plants, multicellular body plants, arthropods, mollusks, corals, and the like, um, <clears throat> you have on, on the one side the argument that there are no such explosions, that uh, yes, indeed, we, we look at the fossil record, yes, indeed, it appears to be abrupt, but not really. There were ghost lineages. We just don't have records of them. But actually, these um, changes occurred gradually. They occurred according to the standard um, modern synthesis view of just a number of very small genetic changes accreting over or accreting in space and time in a lineage. And therefore, there's nothing to see here. Move along. Just move along. Uh, then you have uh, uh, another uh, argument, which was one that stemmed from the 1920s, 1930s, largely in Europe, of just taking the fossil record, looking at it and saying, well, no, actually, there are these explosive events. We do see arthropods suddenly appearing. And not only do we see arthropods suddenly appearing, but we see a number of really weird arthropods uh, 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 appearing, like, um, and, like Anomalocaris. And, uh, um, and, and the like. And so the argument there is that, well, whatever changes occurred genetically had to have occurred very rapidly, and they had to have occurred also in a coordinated way. And the most extreme, which would be the opposite of the microevolutionary view, was that proposed by um, uh, Richard Goldschmidt, in 1940, and that was the notion of the hopeful monster, summarized uh, aptly as the uh, first bird hatched from a lizard's egg. Uh, and so his argument was that you had uh, one, or, you could have one or two mutations that would occur, and these were called systemic mutations, and they would change the whole body plan. So that's the exact opposite. So looking at the fossil record, and he was taking the evidence that had been. Um, amassed by Otto Schindewolf and others, and he said, well, actually, there are these abrupt transitions, and maybe one or two genetic changes could account for them. The problem with that view, uh, uh, as was noted, was that you still have to explain it in terms of a population genetic account. So you may have that one-off individual. Uh, you may have a lizard population, and suddenly you have a bird appear. But who would that bird mate with if all of his kin, his brothers and sisters, are, his, well, are, are lizards, in other words? So you still you, you don't evade the population uh, problem. Uh, other models that have been proposed are those of a more uh, Lamarckian nature, which is that, yes, indeed, you do get these punctuated events. There are these explosive events in the fossil record. Uh, what you see with the Cambrian explosion, 
is real. What you see with the origin of, say, bony fishes and angiosperms and others, all these, the origin of insect flight, yes, this, these were dramatic events, but they could be explained because of some internal uh, uh, directedness to mutational changes. So it's not just population genetics. There's an oriented, um, uh, I wouldn't say teleological, but there's this oriente oriented factor uh, to evolution. And the problem there is that there really are no mechanisms to account for that. Um, we have, to this day, no evidence for there being any real, quote-unquote, Lamarckian um, uh, transformations. A model that I have favored, uh, that I have written about, and that I have colleagues have written about, is that there are uh, so-called jumping genes. There are, uh, most of our DNA, most, for example, in the case of mammals, over half of it consists of things that are like these viral-like elements and various other transposons or so-called jumping genes. We know on the one hand that the so-called, that they're replete with uh, genetic modules that can affect gene regulation. Uh, we know that they can move around quite rapidly, uh, um, you know, within and between chromosomes. And we do know that they can affect genetic changes rather rapidly. And so you have this idea and I would say the most uh, uh, eloquent exponent of it would be James Shapiro, that there is this, um, can be a deployment of genetic information that is not at all random. It's not necessarily intelligently designed, but nevertheless, it can allow for rapid genetic changes to occur in a non-random manner. The problem I would see, see with that model, even though I am inclined to it is that it has to be it has to be mapped to with what we know in the fossil record and I am not yet convinced that the fossil record can can be mapped fully onto such a model of non-random evolution um, uh, and so I and I, I forgot the number but I would say one of the other um, contenders for a punctuated equilibrium type picture, which is where you're taking the fossil record as given, saying, yes, indeed, there are these, these, these I wouldn't call them discontinuities, but certainly uh, the abrupt appearance of new body plans. And that is put under the, the term self-organization, that multicellularity that is having a multicellular organism is rather easy to attain uh, that the genetic changes do not need to be uh, large or numerous. And then, quote-unquote, self-organization takes over the rest. Um, this is a, uh, there are some proponents of this, and by the way, I'm not doing their model any justice, but the problem is that that term self-organization is a very woolly term. Um, in fact, I know of only one or two very good definitions of self-organization uh, that appeared in the 1950s, and all of them said that the term is basically, as used, uh, largely devoid of content. Um, and, and there are various mathematical reasons for it. So I would say that uh, where I have come to agree 
with uh, Stephen Meyer is that when you look at the existing models that have been proposed, uh, even models that I have I've long favored, and still I'm inclined to favor them, um, they fall short of providing an adequate explanation for what we actually see in the fossil record. And that is the reason why I would say alternatives such as intelligent design cannot be simply pushed to the side because we do not have a model that rules out all of the um, other contenders. It seems to me that that kind of directionality ultimately collapses to a model that's either panpsychist, uh, if, if that term where, where matter and mind are, are basically one and the same thing, or whether beginning with the Big Bang, uh, there was there were some um, predestination. There there was a, a preordering of things, uh, but at a very fundamental level, at a quantum level or at an elemental level, because uh, ultimately it would mean that by the time you get bacteria, protozoa, uh, you have um, these programmed genetic changes, you have mechanisms in place that can diversify and that can be deployed to become everything that we see in the natural world. Um, and in the, not only today, but uh, preceding that. So if you're not going to allow for an extrinsic source of information, the alternative is it has to be intrinsic. And if you want to stick to a some version of materialism or or, or naturalism um, to account for that pre -or predestination or preordination of events. Um, I don't see how you can how you can do that. I don't see how one can uh, I don't see how one can have programmed genetic changes without there being some pre-programmer. Uh, unless one wants to go uh, down, say, a vitalistic route, which most don't, or down a panpsychist route, which after Teilhard de Chardin, most don't, or uh, some so-called uh, emergentist materialism account, which I think is devoid of content. Well, um, my, I'm, I'm a Platonist. So my view is that there is an extrinsic source of information. I'm not a monist in any sense. Um, that uh, does not mean that I negate there having been some kind of evolution, a phylogeny, etc. Um, but I believe that the patterns that we see in space and time, um, while they occur in space and time, ultimately have their, their source in an informational realm that is outside space and time. If, uh, I, one, if you were to press me and say, well, what's your source for this? Uh, are you hearkening to the book of Genesis? I would say no, but I am hearkening to the Timaeus. 
you know. And that doesn't mean I believe in a demiurge or anything necessarily, but it does mean that um, uh, I adopt a platonic view, and I agree with Lloyd Gerson that Aristotle was also a Platonist, um, so a platonic Aristotelian view of the natural world, which I think is a full-blooded view of the natural world. It takes species, each species, as being um, what it is, something that uh, has a paradigm, has a model, that um, uh, a verity of its own. And um, yes, species go extinct. Yes, species appear. But it, it takes the notion of, say, programmed genetic changes and say, well, indeed, if they occurred, then there was a pre-programmed source for that information. But this is not something we're going to find uh, by just looking at the material elements or, or by looking at the periodic table or something like that. It's something that we're going to have to find in an extrinsic source. Um, and that extrinsic source is the basis of the rational structure of the universe. So there is an intelligibility to the natural world. Otherwise, science would not be possible. And um, so when I look at that tree, for example, or, I, uh, or, or, or the bird flying by, um, it's not just something that's willy-nilly. It's not just something that just happened. Uh, it's something that uh, uh, reveals an underlying template to the universe. And it has to be taken um, uh, for what it is. But it's of, of intrinsic value, each and every species. So that, I would say, is my, is my view of looking at things.